Wigwam Jam. The Wigwam Jam Podcast, where your voice matters. Uh, so we got another Wigwam, what do we call this? Wigwam Jam. Wigwam Jam yeah. Podcast. And we've got a really special edition a Very today. special one today, Chris. Uh, we can pan over because I've got a very good friend, Tony Moore. Let's have it, Tony. In the house. Thank Welcome. you so much for coming, Tony. I'm very happy to be here. You know, I've, uh, we've known each other for a little while now, and I love what you do for music. Uh, I love what, what you do to support artists, and I'm, I'm very uh, very honoured, actually, that you've invited me to do your podcast. Well, I'm very glad you said that, because I'm sure anyone watching for the first time would think we're a, a slightly ageing boy band. Apart from Dave. Apart from Dave. He's only 14. <laughs> <laughs> but no, welcome, Tony. Welcome. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, tremendous to have you here, because, um, you know, friends and stalwarts of the podcast know that we trying to promote this for up-and-coming artists and people who like to listen to emerging talent. But who better to have than yourself to to explain how it all works? Surely you want to show off your gruff tones. I've actually lost my voice, so I probably won't be speaking as much. Well, at least you turned up today. Thank you, Dave. (laughs) He didn't didn't make the last one. No, (laughs) sadly not. How how did you lose your voice? I've just got a cold. Uh, yes, uh, we've been in Manchester all weekend. Yeah, welcome, Tony, to our humble abode. Great to have you. I think we'll kick off by just finding out a bit more for those that, that have been living under the rock and don't know about who you are and your history, um, and then we'll talk about what you've got coming up uh, and our partnership. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. It's not easy because I've been doing this a really long time, and sometimes I don't think about how long I've been doing it, but I was born in Bristol, grew up in a very musical family. My dad was a classically trained tenor and pianist. He could play anything, and and he did. He'd sit and play Rachmaninoff and Chopin and Mozart and, and sing all the great Italian ballads in Italian. He didn't speak Italian, but he could sing it perfectly. Mm, fantastic. And my mum was a ballet dancer, so she'd be dancing. She'd dance into the room. You know, she'd make it an entrance. Ta-da! This must have been some influence. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. The weird thing is that I, I don't read music, and I went to piano lessons for a couple of months, and I just I couldn't get my head around it. I still can't read it. And luckily, they didn't get frustrated with me. But what I did find I was doing was listening to my dad playing and trying to copy what he was doing by writing my own little musical pieces my reasoning was very simple it's the lazy man's way out right i can't do what you want me to do so i'll do what i want to do and then it can't be wrong what was your what you tried uh, piano lessons but where did you migrate towards oh no i carried on playing the piano i just i i couldn't be doing with all the scales and all the sight reading i would compose little pieces of music so i was probably about 12 by now 11 12 composing little bits of pseudo classical music because i couldn't play what my dad played but everything that he was playing was kind of seeping into me and i remember one day i was reading wind in the willows and there was a little poem in there I think it was a duck's tails, drake's tails, yellow feet a quiver. And I just put that to music because, I, you know, at 12 or 13, there's no life experience to sing about, really. You're not really a great lyricist. Mm. I didn't know what to say. But I had a, a little poem, so I put it to music. That was the, kind of the first song I wrote. And then I got the bug. I was writing lots more. Um, at school, I formed a little band. Anyway, long story short, I played in lots of bands in Bristol. Even at a young age, when I was 15 and a half, nearly 16, I got a gig the backup band for a soul singer called Al Matthews. Some people might remember him. He went on to, he was an actor. He went on to be in Aliens, the second one. He was the drill sergeant with a... All right. Oh, you got to get out there, you know. He was <laughs> a New alone. York Marie, ex-Marine, Classic. big voice, right? But he'd had this song called Fool that was a massive hit in the UK in 70s. 
75, 76, and he needed a band. And back in those days, th this was the thing, right? You were an American act or out-of-town act, and you come and you just pick up a cheap band, mm. and you do the tour around. And so we did that. I, I did it for about a month and a half, stayed in little hotels, played, played to sold-out shows, signed some autographs. People loved it. I found out later you could get paid for that as well. <laughs> I think they realized I was a bit young and green. Yeah. And they went, well, it'd be a good experience for you. Yeah. But it was. It was great. Then I thought, I need to move to London. I was 17 now. Uh, the streets are paved with gold, yeah, of course. as they say. So I, I answered an advert in the Melody Maker, which the younger generation won't understand this, but the Melody Maker was like the internet in written format, mm. right? So all the information in the music industry, all, everything you needed to know, articles, reviews, interviews, and then the want ads, exactly, right? Yeah. So personnel, equipment for sale, romantic liaisons, whatever, it was all there. And the musicians wanted, there was a big box advert and it said, Iron Maiden, rock band, six drummer and keyboard synth player, no idiots, right? They weren't famous, so I didn't know. No, but nevertheless, let's just stop there yeah. a second. We're talking Iron Maiden. <laughs> yes. So to me, you know, it doesn't get much bigger and better than that. <laughs> so for, you answered an advert in Melody Maker for Iron Maiden. Yes, and I think they, they were very clever because they always had an eye to the marketing, right? When I joined them, they had that logo, right? That was, that's been there since, almost since day one. Mm. The idea of a strong brand, a strong... So instead of just putting a little advert saying, looking for a keyboard player, it's a big box advert with their name in it because it's, it's in the paper, right? Even if you don't want to join a band, you see the name, right? It's, yes, I, I phoned them up. I think I spoke to I think I spoke to Dennis Wilcock, who was the singer in the band at the time, and arranged an audition. So I I stuck my gear uh, as the as a keyboard player. Keyboard, keyboard. Yes, and I don't play drums, um, but I did have a synth. Right. In, in fact, when I did the audition, I had a Korg micro synth, which was an awful little preset synth, <laughs> and a Wurlitzer piano. I mean, the the two least rock and roll key. Uh, well, no, not rock and roll. Piano is very rock and roll, but uh, heavy metal. But I didn't even know what the music was. Right, it was just a band. So, so was Iron Maiden back then going a bit more? I don't know, prog, heavy prog, that sort of thing. Were so, they... so Steve, Steve Harris, Harris, yeah, who's the has been the driving force mm. of Iron Maiden since day one. He always loved things like Genesis, yeah, and Todd Rundgren and Pink Floyd and all that. There was a big record at the time called Bells of Berlin by a band called Lone Star. Check the record out. Mm. It's a fantastic record. It's really long, super catchy, but it's got that rhythm. The da, 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 da. It's that kind of shuffly thing that's yeah. very, a lot, a lot of the Maiden kind of stuff and that, that metal stuff is that shuffle thing. So, and in this Bells of Berlin, there's lots of synth. I think the idea was, okay, let's get a keyboard in and add those flavors to, to Maiden, mm. right? I put a little HH combo, my Wurlitzer, my synth bag of cables in the back of my Austin 1100. My girlfriend at the time, Sally, and we drove up to London. We went, right? we'd only ever rehearsed in my mum's basement or my friend's garage. So you're going from not much exposure or experience yeah. to straight in there with, with the likes of I Made yeah, in the well, early days. It, it was like, this is standard in, in London, right? The rehearsal room where a ton of amps and the, I mean, Steve's bass rig, I think it was a big Ampeg, the, the 8 by 10 and then the, it was massive, right? There was, a, there was like a hum in the room from all the amps that were on. <laughs> and if you imagine that moment in Back to the Future when Martin yeah, plugs yeah, the yeah. guitar in, yeah, yeah, and plays that first chord. It was almost a bit like that when the band started, right? Because it was so loud, but so exciting. And we just played for, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes. And I just tried to find a space to be the keyboard player in this band. And then we stopped and they went outside and had a little chat. And they came back and they went, all right, gig's yours if you want it. Yeah, all right, I love it. So, you know, <laughs> as a fan of Iron Maiden, it's not known very well for its uh, keyboards. So how, how long did this gig last? Oh, it was very, it, wasn't, it, was, it was one gig actually, 
it was six, eight months, something like that. It was my reason to move to London. And like I said, when I first moved to London, I, I stayed with Steve and his nan in uh, Steel Road and Leytonstone. Those, those days in the back room in his nan's house with his big record collection, sitting there talking about how much we love Genesis mm. and how we will have a stage show like them one day, this big <laughs> light system, and that we're going to be the cutting edge of new British rock, right? We're coming out of the, the punk thing, right? So punk has punctured the, the big rock balloon and it's deflated and all the big dinosaurs have kind of withdrawn inside mm. their caves a bit to, to rethink what they're going to do and the landscape's changed so you know the sex pistols and the damned and 999 and all these british bands along with the american bands and ramones and stuff kind of scaring everybody by by doing it themselves some of that i think bled into the into the early maiden certainly with the speed that things were played. Is this what, uh, the, the precursor to New Wobbum and stuff Yeah, because like there that. wasn't a phrase like that, right? Mm. Nobody knew what was you know, going do you on. Know, do you know New Wobbum, Nathan? <laughs> no, I don't. Big that you are? I don't, actually. It, it sounds like a like um, a small area just outside sound, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? I, I live in New Wobbum, actually. It's, uh... it's the new wave of British heavy metal. Okay, well, I probably, late should, know. I probably should know that. Late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. That's when I started listening. Yeah, to yeah. yeah. When uh, all of us nine-year-olds <laughs> used to do head-banging in the disco. It was absolutely fantastic. So in the time that I was in the band. We all of pretty much all of the first album was in the set, and Steve was writing stuff for the second album, including Phantom of the Opera. I remember sitting with him, and he's trying to play it to me, and I'm because it, it's a brilliant piece of music, mm. but it's quite the first time we hear it's quite complicated to work out kind of where the one is. But it was just really exciting times because it wasn't glamorous, but everyone was very serious. It was very pro. There was ambition attitude. in there, obviously. Absolutely right, and. Um, that was partly why I got so excited about it all. And it all led eventually to one gig at the Bridge House in Canning Town because there'd, there'd been a couple of variations of Iron Maiden up to that point. And then they'd taken a step back to kind of reconfigure everything, including keyboard player. It wasn't the greatest gig. In, it was very busy, but it didn't feel like the greatest gig in the world. There were a lot of things went wrong. But at the end of it, it, it kind of seemed to me not the right band for keyboards. For me, I, yeah. well, I was finding it hard to work out, yeah. right? And it was a very amicable thing. I mean, I just called, I think it was Dennis and Steve. I just called them up and said, listen, I just, it's not working for me. I think this isn't the right thing. And, well, the, here's the thing about Steve, as I've observed. He's like a steamroller in one direction. <coughs> so if you're in the band, great. If you're not in the band, great. I'm just going. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not like, oh, no. It's just, it's like, if you're not part of the band, you're, then you're doing something else, but we're carrying on doing the thing, right? And there there have been 24 different members of Iron Maiden over the years. In the early days, lots of people, you know, came and went for whatever reasons. But I think there was a moment after I left, I know Dennis and Terry left and formed a band called V1, which really just left, and the drummer, Thundersticks, he went and joined Sam Samson. Right? When Bruce was still in the band. Yeah, exactly. That's right? where he was, right. So there's the irony of he joins the band and then Bruce leaves the band to join Iron Maiden. Exactly, and, yeah. But Paul Diano, Adrian, Dave, Steve, and Clive Burr, that was the format. Suddenly, same songs, but That's that, where it clicked. that energy, yes, it, it, that personal, that magic there. It's got the deal, the management, and then they worked harder than any band I've ever seen since. And they had the best spandex. Well, they had a lot of spandex, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a that's a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. look what I am made have become. Fascinating. You know, yeah. it's, uh... <laughs> it's only got you to 1978, though. So <laughs> oh, good God, <laughs> you have to split this into three. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, then the thereafter, leading up to I guess cutting crew days. That, that's ten years later. Yeah. So I've left. I left in 1978. 
and I joined, I answered another advert in the Melody Maker. Before you go into that, I just want to, it's a good segue, right? <laughs> so you might have heard sort of music tech platform, that's what I call it, anyway, right. called Jammer. Yep. Oh, right, yeah, <laughs> yes, let's get that in, yes. Now, the reason I bring this up I know is because not say. many people know this, but Jammer is a bit like Melody Maker, and Nathan's going to explain why in his gruff tones. Well, I think there's big, the jobs through the jobs board. We were discussing this on the train the other day. Yeah, we were. So, yeah, it's, it's that night. Thanks for the link, Chris. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's much appreciated. Yeah, so Jammer has a jobs board, which is essentially like, in fact, someone can, it was someone that you were talking to that compared it to yeah. Melody Maker in terms of that jobs board is a digital version of the physical back pages of Melody Maker back in the day. So, Which is a great idea, Nathan, because there isn't, to my knowledge, that kind of format. There's, yes, there's age. Agencies yeah. and there's Facebook will have groups, but it's all a bit difficult to navigate and find. 100%, right? yeah. So to kind of put everything in one place as, as a notice board for buying, yeah. selling, need a musician, need a singer, who's co-writing, where's the studio, all that kind of stuff. That's mm. uh, that's a great resource. Thank you. And obviously you can pay through it and discounts, partners. Yeah. So jammermusic.com is the uh, digital melody maker. Yes, cheers. Thanks so back, back to... Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Back to the early 80s. Yeah, so I, I answer another advert. Well, I, I join a band that Brian James has formed. He was the original guitarist in The Damned. He wrote Neat, Neat, Neat and New Rose, which were the two first punk singles that came out ahead of The Pistols, mm. right? And they were a lot more... I mean, the Sex Pistols are amazing, right? If you listen to the records now, they're just they're better now than they were then, almost. Incredible productions, great rock band productions. You know, I, I have to be honest, we all, you know, uh, young musicians, we all went, Johnny Rotten, oh, what a terrible singer. Actually, he's a brilliant singer. He was never out of tune. Right? He had attitude. We just didn't like the attitude. Just a different time. tune to everyone else. Well, no, he's in tune with the record. I mean, he yeah, bends the notes. When you look at that now, it was actually you know, the right you, tune. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's not like it's out of tune. When you hear somebody out of tune, you, you can't listen to it. Yeah. It's just that there was a lot of, and we don't care, right? He was like, <laughs> but it was an attitude. But it yeah. wasn't an out of tune thing, right? So I can look back uh, fondly at uh, those records and go, wow, these are amazing records. But the Dan records were a lot less beautifully produced, shall we say. They were a lot more about the energy. Mm. It was like, neat, 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 right? It was that whole punk energy. But Brian, at that point, had decided he wanted to do something a bit more musical, wanted a keyboard player. So this band had Alan Powell, who had been the drummer in Hawkwind, obviously Brian, myself, and then a guy called Andy on the bass, who'd had a band called Warsaw Pact. And we had management, and I was getting £25 a week retainer. And I thought I'd jumped to the right ship. For me, we felt like we were in the heart of the cutting edge of cool bands, right? We were going to the opening of uh, special events and getting photographs, and it was all in sounds and mm. Melody Maker and New Musical Express. and. We still had a bit of a punk attitude, so much so that we picked up a tour opening for Black Sabbath. Wow. Half, this was the last one before Ozzy left You're in 78. Right, yeah. And we picked it up halfway through because the opening band had left the tour. Partly, I think, because they were doing too good on the tour. Yeah, and partly because happen. their career was blowing up in America. And they, I think they had a cover of uh, a Kink song, um, You Really Got Me. Van Halen. Oh, no way. So. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't do badly, did so, they? No, yeah. they did well, didn't they? <laughs> but not unfortunately, because I, none of it's unfortunate. It's all an amazing experience. But um, interestingly enough, for the people who bought a ticket for the, on, when Van Halen were on the tour, they got us. And the first night of the show was Birmingham Odeon, which was the, the home audience for Black Sabbath. And we got on that stage and they were trying to bottle us off the stage. I've never faced that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were running down, going, oh, oh. And I was going, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. It's like when Prince opened for the Stones. 
I, isn't that right? <laughs> the, the wrong <laughs> artist at the wrong moment in time. Yeah. And audiences just don't get it, yeah, right? Yeah. Nowadays, you can go and see Metallica and Green Day on the same bill. And nobody goes, oh, they're punk, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. But back then, it was very divisive. <laughs> taught me a lot. Taught me how to duck. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I stayed with that band for about a year. It was a bit like the Libertines. It had lots of press, and it was really, everyone was talking about it, but it didn't translate into commercial success. We, we did a John Peel session, though. That was amazing. And he said nice things about us on the radio.
So a little dicky bird told me, yeah. I think this is one of the early days when we knew each other, little dicky bird told me that Tony was in Cutting Crew. Oh, yes. Well, I haven't got there yet. I, I, yeah, I got there yet. I'll, I'll get there quickly because I know this podcast isn't infinite. We're running out of tape. Yes. I've got to tell you a quick joke. Go on, tell a quick joke. It doesn't, this, nobody will get this anymore, but there was um, apparently, it's not a joke, it's apparently a true story, but there was this band back in the whenever, early 80s, but they're in a studio, 24-track studio, right? And their manager, who knows nothing about the business, he's a bit of, um, he's kind of funding it probably a bit of a gangster and you know he's got a bit of chutzpah and he thinks he's going to take the band places right apparently he comes in and the, the band are all a bit dejected and go oh, and he goes well, what's the matter kids and they go well you know we just we needed to do some more guitar solos and there's no more tracks left it's a 24 track yeah team. so he goes over to the engineer and goes yeah mate look, he's under a quick go and get him another couple of tracks because <laughs> he has no idea <laughs> yeah. that it's on the tape right he just yeah. he thinks they it, uh, money can buy them some more tracks yeah. of course they can though i'll oh, just go and get another couple of hard drives right yeah, not back in the day um now, the bass player in England Stroke Romance was Colin Farley. And we, when we left, we formed a little duo to do synth pop stuff, which didn't do much. But we've been mates for years, right? And one day, um, he calls me up and he says, I've joined this band and we need a keyboard player. I went, all right. And the band was Cutting Crew. So that was my in to Cutting Crew, right? I knew nothing about the band. But he, he, was, he was the bass player in the band. And, and so I joined the band and... By the beginning, the first big European tour we did, it, did at the beginning of 1987, Died in Your Arms is doing well in Europe. That was a huge hit. Yes. But here's the weird thing. We were signed to Siren Records, which was a division of Virgin. And Virgin America launched in 87. And there was a big discussion about what would be the first single they put out, right? Because you've now got the entire record label poised to work one record. Yeah, yeah. They want it to be a big hit. And it's got to be a hit, with, right? Yeah. I, I can't tell you this is true, but the, I heard the story that Pete Wiley's story of the blues was a contender to be the first but then it was died in your arms and we're in the we're in the middle of this european tour and we get this message it's flying up the american charts you got to go to america and it's like wow okay right we're i can't remember where we were in the middle of germany somewhere so we cut the european tour short came back regrouped got everything together and flew out probably mayish to start first american tour opening for the bangles yeah wow right <laughs> <laughs> Right. Sorry. At their height. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was a teenager yeah, when the Bengals yeah, were yeah, out. You're having a hot moment. my legs now, I'm afraid. Yeah. You're having a Susanna moment. Give him that cushion. Oh, absolutely. I follow her on Instagram now. A side eye. She's great, isn't she? She's still doing little cool. Every now and then she does the side eye thing now. Compared with the side eye yeah, thing then. No messing. Um, great band. It's a link from there to, to Prince. He wrote Manic Monday. Yes, he did. It, which, oh, it's all falling together. Yeah, yeah, it really is. is. Perfect storm brewing. We um, talk of a storm. We arrived in Atlanta to fly to New Orleans where the first date was electric thunderstorms we were the, the last flight out when we got to New Orleans we um, we were playing the next day at the zoo right? there's a big because um, they do that in America all the theme an parks an actual zoo yeah they have I remember sparks at uh, some theme park some roller coaster yes and... but they also have all the, the big staging there right so it's a it's a thing kids can go in the afternoon and then they can go to the gig in the evening so like, we... uh, like the puppet show with Spinal Tap <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well you know it should have been Spinal Tap first obviously yeah. but um, um, but that was, of course, the, um, the the day the world heard Jazz Odyssey. What a, yeah, exactly. What a, what a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful day to remember that was. So we, we did our bit, and then 
the heavens opened, they had to cancel the gig. So the Bengals didn't even play the first night of the tour that we joined them with. But then we went on, did some amazing shows for them. So how big did the track become? In well, the eventually, it, it was the first, at the time, it was the fastest debuting number one in America. Wow. Um, <laughs> so let me and just slip that one just in. Throw it in there, tone, yeah. <laughs> and then it went on to be number one in 15 different countries. Wow. So Must be a mind-blowing uh, time. It was, it was the like... The whirlwind. It was, it was amazing, and I loved every second of it because I really lived in the moment. So yeah. I'd always get up early. In fact, we did like the first half of the Bengals tour, and then we went to Japan. Uh, we went to Hong Kong and Japan and did promo and shows there. And when we were in Hong Kong, we all bought video cameras because that, that, that whole kind of Super 8 format had really just arrived, and it was small enough that so, you could take it anywhere, yeah. right? So I've got a ton of oh, video, wow. a ton of video of those days. Lots of it's just random stuff for me walking down the streets talking to people. Um, pretending that I'm a roving reporter, just you know, it, it was, but it was both innocent and very serious at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because when you've got a number one record, everybody loves you, obviously, and everyone gives you whatever you want and makes it comfortable and you limos. And but it was also so un um, unexpected. Yeah, you can't I hadn't predict these things, before, can you? Right? Yeah. yeah, and I was just having the time of, of my course. life. You got You got to enjoy it while you can, haven't you? So the two biggest highlights for me, one was the Johnny Carson show on his birthday. Remember, no internet. So the the estimated audience was eight, 80 million uh, watching the show live. And it everything was live, right? Uh, I was in the studio the night before. They they rented keyboards for me because I didn't, we couldn't get my keyboards there from the tour. Right? It was too complicated. We, we can all jump on a plane and fly there quickly. But to bring the, the um, stuff off the tour was too complicated. So I rented keyboards and was programming them the night before to get all the sounds. We were going to do two songs, Died in Your Arms and then Been in Love Before, which was going to be the next The single. next one, yeah. I remember we, we had everything set up. We're behind the curtains. We're going to come out of the interval and do the two songs. And then 30 seconds before the curtains come, some guy comes in with headphones and the clipboard. He says, we're running late. Cut one song. All right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, ah, what do we cut? We made the decision. Died in Your Arms has already been a hit. Yeah. Let's play the new one. But that was going to be the second song. So all my keyboards are programmed for Died Around. So now I'm... <laughs> yeah. Right, because there was going to be like Panic a minute stations, or so, to, you know, where Johnny would probably say something to Nick and say, so how are you enjoying the success, Nick? Oh, it's great. Well, let's let's hear your second song, right? And the curtains are going back. Oh, just in time. Uh, I just reposted a bit of video <laughs> of it on, on my Facebook. Um, it's in black and white, which makes it look very exciting. But because my cousins recorded it live off the TV... And when I copied the VHS, the American VHS, because of the difference between NTSC and PAL, mm. yeah. different video formats, it came out as black and white. Yeah. But it looks kind of cool. Anyway, you can see it. We're all a bit like, you know, deer in headlights. There's the wrong mixes yeah, in no, the monitors. Play. I mean, right? you don't need that when you've got an 80 million <laughs> watching you change it at the last minute. But you've got to do it, right? That's yeah. that's the nature Sink of the game. Sink or swim, yeah. 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 And then the other amazing thing we did, we played in um, Taipei. So Taiwan at the time had just started relaxing its cultural revolutionary boundary. Well, that's boundaries the wrong words, but restrictions. So when Chiang Kai-shek marched out of China and went to Taiwan, they destroyed all culture. No one was allowed to sing, dance, paint, do anything, right? It was the hardcore communist regime. So they just destroyed it. They destroyed the statues. And we arrived about a month or two after. We were the second Western band to play there after Gloria Estefan, hmm. who was the first Western band that they allowed hmm. people to come to a concert to. But after that, they relaxed the regulation that you could dark, couldn't dance. 
So this was the first time people could, kids could stand up and dance. Wow. That's... And it blew our minds that to be in a place where we were the first band that an audience danced to. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And there's bits of clips of that somewhere on YouTube as well. That was about 60,000 people in, the, in, in this basketball arena. And there was a, not a, a violent riot, but a bit of a riot for people just trying to get in because mm. they don't want to be left out of this thing. These moments were quite life-changing. Yeah, I bet. When I realised that we were kind of part of the cultural history of change in, in a country, in both senses actually, with the Johnny Carson show, because that was the, the culture of America at the time. That show was so important. Uh, so that was Cutting Crew. And then we came, at the end of the tour, the second single was, wasn't was really being played they kept playing the first one right don't know so we came back to the uk to make another album that went on for about a year and for various reasons i just i felt it was time to move on so i left the band at that point but it was it was a magical time it sounds phenomenal we can't you know it's easy for us tonight (laughs) yeah absolutely and uh, some of the people that you've met along the way and uh, so we know you from uh, the fact that you are the, the curator at world famous the bedford in Ballam, yeah. in London. Um, how, how did you get into that? Well, so that, that journey starts about six years earlier. And really, I have to kind of take the end of the, the Cutting Crew story into that a little bit. So I, it's now about 1989. I formed a band called Big Parade. I thought it's going to be easy. Right, I've been in a band with a number one. We're going to get a deal. It's going to be easy. No, it wasn't easy at all. None of that happened. We gigged for about two two years solidly and wrote and recorded. And that kind of faded out, unfortunately. And then I met a girl called Marie-Claire Dubaldo, who was an Argentine singer-songwriter, to write with her because she had a development deal. And that worked for about a year or two until she got a full-blown deal with Polydor in America, at which time she and I were a bit of an item and writing together. And so she made this album. I wrote three or four songs with her on the album. She wrote a lot with Rick Knowles and Billy Steinberg. She wrote with a lot of different people. And she had one monster hit off of this album. Um, There was lots of problems with the record label. No time to go into it already. But she had one monster hit in Europe. So in Italy... If you go, if you speak to anyone who remembers the early '90s, and you tell them the rhythm is magic by Mary Claire Dubaldo, they go, "Oh my God, that mm. song is like, It was like the soundtrack of '94. It was it was the biggest hit there. It was also pretty big in Spain, in Japan, in Russia, in Latin America, wow. but never released in the UK or America. So they, eventually, the record label dropped her. It was all a bit messy, and it's now about 1996. And I'm thinking to myself, I've done all of this stuff, and I'm a songwriter at heart, and there's nowhere for me to play my song. I just want to sit down. And sit at the keyboard, sit at the acoustic and play songs to people that want to listen. And at the same time, one of my best friends who worked for BMI, the American version of PRS, was telling me about this place called the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, where everyone yeah, venerated yeah, singer songwriters, yeah. right? So in my imagination, it was like this gorgeous place with red velvet um, bonquette seating and a grand piano, great spotlights. And so I thought, I'm going to do something like that. So I found, had went through a couple of locations for a month or two, but found this location under a pub in Marylebone. And, the, and I called the club the Cashmere club because first of all i like the sound of the word cashmere partly because it was a led zeppelin track well, and i, I love that say, track yeah it's a fantastic track and cashmere i believe in its original language means beautiful valley i think so i went cashmere club with two k's of course it did stand out because people kept spelling it with c and I went no it's a k right <laughs> <laughs> but the idea was me and mary claire and our mates were great right we could just sing songs it was free entry I blagged all the gear, the PA and the mics and everything from friends in the industry because I wanted it to sound great. And I booked the acts to start with because they were my mates. And I hosted the show because I like hosted shows. I like everyone to know what's going on. And within uh, two or three months, it was a massive success. Mm. We were doing two nights a week. Started at one. Mm. Oh, we ran for six years, got up to six nights a week at the end of six years. I fat, I had debut performances from people like Damien Rice. Wow. Who made us cry. He was so good. We're going... 
Mm. Emotionally amazing. When he was singing with Lisa, we had The Feeling when they weren't called The Feeling. Mm -hmm. They had a female singer then. Um, we had Imogen Heap. Cheryl Crow came down one night to see an act that was playing and said, can I play here? And we gave her a gig that Saturday, unannounced. I said, listen, here's the deal. You have to sound check when people are coming in because we haven't got, we can't pay was you. Was this when she was known? Or was oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, she's a big star. Yeah, this is 19. She was an old. Oh, that was, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Pete. So I, I, I said to her, um, you, uh, you know, uh, we can't pay you, obviously, because it's free entry and we haven't got any money. And, and even if we do, we can't afford you. You'll have to sound check when people are coming in. We can't tell anyone you're playing, obviously. But we do ask all the artists to invite some friends. That's the deal. She went, oh, I, I, we can do that. So she came in. She set up with her band, who were all English guys, good mates of mine, did her sound check. In fact, I got an email the next day from this guy. He said, oh, I, I, said, I, I turned up a bit later. And when I got to my table, my friends were already there. I said, have I missed anything? And they went, no, no, it hasn't started yet. It's just been the sound checks. And he said, oh, what was it? And they went, well, it's this girl. She's like an Alanis Morissette lookalike doing Sheryl Crow covers. <laughs> <laughs> that was before I announced that it was Sheryl Crow. People went, because like, why would you think it was Sheryl Crow? Yeah, that, in this tiny yeah. little basement. I was crying. I was standing yeah. at the side of the stage going, this is Cheryl Crow yeah. and in my little club because she wants to be here because mm -hmm. the vibe is a thing and she's happy to do all of that. And, and, she, and she brought some friends, right? She brought uh, Emmylou Harris. She brought Chrissy Hind. Wow. Yeah. And Lance Armstrong? No, it was, no, it was before that, actually. <laughs> it's like... No, that's phenomenal. They're, they're so, down the table having a pizza with everybody else, right? success, basically, <laughs> the Cashmere Club. Yes, so, but it closed uh, because the guy that owned the building wanted to renovate it. So I, I was, I had nowhere to do the gig. And, and to be honest, I hadn't, didn't plan to run a venue for six years and book acts. Mm. Um, much as I loved it, um, my plan was still to write songs and be an artist. Yeah, it happened by accident. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But because I, when you, when you find that you can do something really well... Even if it's not what what you thought you wanted to do, there's a there's a great draw to continue doing yeah, of it course. because you can see the results of your work, right? In an, and this is the the really um, satisfying things. You, you can make a movie and spend months making a movie, and it might be a hit and it might not be. But with this, every night it's a success. It was working, so, yeah, right? Yeah. It was like instant gratification, mm, yeah. right? So, um, so how did you then? How did that then lead into what is now the Bedford? Yeah, well, when it closed, I got this phone, this text message from a guy called Chris Scully who owned the Bedford at the time, saying. He said, I heard about the club closing. I, you know, I really like what you did. I've got a great venue. Would you come and see it and see if you can help us? You know, it's not working. We need some help. So I went down and I saw the place and I said, I'll come and help you for six months. And that was in 2003. That's 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, most people, that's most people's entire career, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you normally get a gold watch at the end of that. Or, or, or gold capo or something. <laughs> so the Bedford needs no introduction. I mean, um, just rattle off some of the people that you've... Well, within the first had. six months of me taking over running it, I had 17-year-old Paolo Nutini arrived from Glasgow, who played with us for about a year before he, his deals really kicked in. And he was already an amazing singer, mm. but he had a charisma that oh, was yes. just unbelievable and it, the staff right would all just kind of try and work in the in the theater at the same time because is that you know and they're all like watching him going yeah, so everyone knew great. immediately so you, know, you know it you yeah. knew it right it was so good and he was cheeky and funny and yeah he's charming great. and but he had had that voice um james morrison um james bay katie tunstall you throw some pretty big names in, in here so yeah I mean, I, the, Lars a as well but they <laughs> but none of them but, were big right no, they were just like us yeah Every, everyone's just a human being right everyone's uh, but because of a lot of the crossover from the Kashmir Club, right, that came with me. But because I made it a place with an amazing sound and a great stage, and it took us a little while to get there, it has to be said, because they they were doing the shows in the upstairs room with a little PA, and I went, we've got to get a better PM. We've got to do the shows downstairs mm. and make it what it really is now. Mm. But but yeah, I, I've. Uh, 
I mean, 20 years, we used to program about 20 acts a week. And if you add that uh, by 2, 5, 10, that's like 1,000 acts 20, a year. 20,000, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's more or less 20,000 performances. Bad, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've that's... seen a lot of live music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And which one stands out? Um, Apart from the Radio Wigwam Awards, clearly. Of course. Well, I was going to go, go, meet into that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, it's really hard because I love everyone, right? Mm. I, I book everyone because I really love their music and I, and they're all at different places in their career. Um, there was, um, well, we had Kiki D there one night and, and I, I've loved Kiki D since I was a kid mm. and she came and did one of our charity nights. She was amazing. She's just such an incredible performer. Um, it's a guy called Antonio Forcioni, who's an, an instrumentalist guitarist, but next level genius of guitar between jazz, um, kind of world music and the tapping stuff. He was doing things that nobody had ever seen anyone do before. Mm. He would, we were the only place that he would ever play for nothing because it, even, even at that point in his career, he, he could sell out Ronnie Scott's or he could sell out, but he'd come and play because he's like the vibe and we'd all sit there and go, oh my God. That must be absolutely fabulous when yeah. you know you've created that sort of venue that people just want to play at. Yeah. And it's the same for the artists that come from Jammer and yes. from Wigwam. We're lucky enough to, to get there. Well, you know, you're, you're doing a, a similar thing uh, through different media forms to help support emerging artists. I mean, one of the reasons I keep doing it is because I know that I'm making a difference for, for a lot of people by giving them a platform in a way that they wouldn't normally get it. Mm. But you're doing a, a similar thing in a, in a different way. You know, you've got a radio station where you've got a, a reach um, of people that, that will trust your judgment, like what you do, and can be listening all around the world. And with Jammer, you're doing the same thing. You're creating, creating opportunities all over the place. I'm functioning really in one or two venues between the Bedford yeah, and so, the Camden Club. So exactly. You just mentioned it. I was going to segue into the Camden Club. So that's yes. your latest venue. Yeah. So Andrew Hart, who owns it, um, owns the, the property, well, owns the lease on the property. I got contacted about 18 months ago to go and meet him because he was looking for someone to put on a night of music and I walked into the venue and there was nothing in there it was just the remains of what had been Belgo's the restaurant and there was actually a wall down the middle because they had two kind of dining areas and I and and I'm so busy that I don't really have time to take anything else on but there was there's a vibe in that room there's like it's like a feng shui thing mm. right you can I instantly felt this will be an amazing space for, for music so I said I will come on board but only if, if, if you um, give me the job to do everything let me do everything as in work out where the yeah, be. lighting, sounds, uh, and curating all the music and guiding the the vibe of it, and and we'll get it up to speed. And both venues, are we love it both. We love it both. You know, uh, the next the next Jammer Wigwam showcase. That's right. at the Camden Club on yeah. November thirtieth. That's right. Tickets we can't are, wait. We got four great acts yeah. going to be yeah. at the the Camden Club yeah. on the thirtieth of November. Thirtieth of November. Free tickets available. Free. Check yeah. socials. Well, the last show you Come did along. at the Bedford um, was such a great success. Yeah, that was. Well, thank the, you, Tony. Um, we you enjoyed know, it, and uh, you you know you really did an amazing job. And I think it's quite interesting because you're you're creating these kind of themed branded. Again, I don't want to use the word showcase. Highlight events that are a gig in themselves, but it's an opportunity to put artists together for them to share their audience, but also for your wider reach to be able to come and see what you've been playing, what you've been talking about, yeah. who you've been promoting, and see them live, right? We're trying and to do our bit to get some, yeah, people maybe didn't, wouldn't get the exposure of some yeah. other way. They're coming from all over the place. We had we had a band from uh, Australia last time. <laughs> that was it, Holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we got, we got people coming from Liverpool uh, and some closer to home, but that none, all of them can't wait to play these fantastic venues because, uh, yeah, they're, they're really choice, and the sound is great, the lights are great. We 
can't wait. Yes. He loves it. He loves it. Well, I, I have no doubt that uh, November the 30th at the Camden Club will be uh, equally as amazing as the Bedford one. And, and that was a full night, right? You, it you was. You rammed yeah. the place. Oh, it was yeah. great. Great stuff. So um, the eagle-eyed amongst us will have <laughs> noticed uh, that you've got something on your cap, Tony. Um, yes. So tell us, what, what's awake? Okay, so now we move into contemporary Tony territory. Um, the historical stuff we'll put to one side now. Uh, in 2021, I basically made an album. And I did it because it was the second lockdown period. And I was working in the shed in my mum's garden where I'd been streaming shows through the lockdowns and, and looking after my mum. And had, I have all my gear in there. In the winter, it's cold. In the summer, it's sweaty because it's just a shed, right? It's not had no acoustic treatment or environmental treatment. So in the, in the winter, I've got big coats on, a little blower heater and a... <laughs> but I feel um, a song coming. <laughs> <out>. <laughs> but I thought I'd, I'd written this piece of music called "Awake" that was quite long, quite a bit proggy. Yeah, a bit of a concept. Um, yeah, it was a bit Floydy meets um, Dire Straitsy mm. kind of territory. But I was only written one song. A bit of a wall tucked in there. Well, at the, the, the thing is that it started with just the one piece of music, and so many people liked it when I played it on the live stream and commented on positively, and thousands watched it. I thought it feels like an opening. Album, uh, opening track for an album. I haven't written the album yet. I better write the album. <laughs> I just went, I'm going to make a concept album. I'm going to do what the 13-year-old Tony always wanted to do, but was never in the right situation to be able to do. Either I was too young or then I was too busy or I didn't have the time or I didn't have the concept of what the concept would be. So for me, this I, I made the whole album in two months, February and March. I recorded everything as I wrote it. Awake goes into the next song, which is a piece of music called The Clock Has Started. So I wrote it, worked out all the parts, sang it, mixed it down, moved on. And and the album has a kind of narrative arc, as an emotional narrative arc, right? So it's not like there's a story per se, but it feels like you're going on a journey. Because as I'm writing it, I'm going, where does this need to go next? Right, I finished this 17 songs and I haven't released the album because as I was making it, I realized without this being either with a major or having major promotion or an audience that already knows about it, it will just sit on the Spotify shelf and no one to listen to it. So I, as I was making it, I was designing the live show because I knew it had to be live. So for every song, there's a video. And I tried out the videos during the live streams by creating this weird, I've got green screen in my shed. So I would create what looked like a stadium stage using kind of layering through Photoshop and Final Cut to create the elements to make it look like there's a big screen yeah. with a trussing around it and there's a drum kit over there and amps. And I put the videos on the screen behind me so that, so that people could see it. And then afterwards, I watch it back and I go, oh, yeah, that works. Or oh, I could change that. You know, it, I was actually road testing the live show before we were even live. There's various themes in Awake. You yes. say it, it hasn't got one overall yeah. story, it's, it's, it's but yeah, it goes off on, on various uh, various directions, some scary ones as well. Yeah, well, it, 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 it's, it's layered. You can enjoy the show and just go, like the costume changes, great guitar solos. Well done, Tony. Enjoyed that. Or you can be more emotionally connected with it. So the three main themes of the album were the first one was, you know, whatever what we were all going through in 20 and 21, mm. right? It was the craziest time. Nobody could have ever predicted what would be happening, and it was happening. So there was a lot of things that were going through in my mind. There was lots of things me and my friends were talking about, but there's lots of things we were just experiencing. Some of that was really good, as in I was staying with my mum, who had dementia, and I was her carer, and I had nowhere else to be. It was like a snow day mm. do you remember those snow days yeah, when yeah. you're a kid and you wake up and suddenly it's like february of whatever and, and a ton of snows arrived overnight you can't go to school yeah right can hardly open the front door so you just stay at home and and it's like it's like 
I've won something, right? Because I don't have to, nobody's no one's going to tell me off for not being anywhere because they yeah, understand, right? Yeah, it was a bizarre so there was time. a sense of that that I did, all I could do was make music and hang, and spend time with my mum, right? And uh, that was a very beautiful thing, right? But then there were also aspects to what was happening that was very ominous and disturbing, right? You know, the not being able to go places. I mean, not being able to sing, mm. right? Not being able to go to church or go to someone's funeral. Mm. These were like, this is really quite dark, right? This isn't normal, right? So there's so all these of that. feelings that yeah. your uh, that humankind was going yes, through, yes, all of that. There's kind locked of in your shed. Yes. This is coming through into a wake. Yeah. Plus. Dealing with my mum and wanting her to be a part of this because she's always been a part of my life. So there's some elements that address her and her dementia yeah. and me looking after her. I remember at one point the government told us if you're a creative, you should retrain. <laughs> yeah, you could be in tech. That's yes. right. <laughs> you could be a developer. Yes. What, 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 that backfired. What a shit campaign, well, let's that, be honest. But that was, for, we I think for every we creative, it's like day. that was one of the most a slap in the face. darkly depressing things yeah. I'd ever heard. So I look at my life. We've talked a lot about the highlights of it. By anyone's standards, I've had an amazing, successful life. I've done some incredible things. I've been some in unbelievable places. I have no regrets. If it but all you're finished still a, tomorrow, you're still a young man, Tony. I am. That's true. <laughs> but the point is, the 13-year-old Tony had these dreams of doing something, and they got a bit sidetracked by doing all these other things, which were great. So when we were told this, you got to retrain. There was a part of me thought, is that it then? Yeah. Do yeah, I never I get to do another gig? Do I never get to do the thing that I've spent my life doing? And that was really disturbing. So there's an element of me looking at my life through the show. There's one song in particular called Remember Me, which is basically 13-year-old Tony singing to me, saying, have you done what I promised I would do? And I thought, I haven't. I better do it now. So Awake is partly that as well, right? So it, it works on many. But the, the strange thing is, what appeared to me to be a very personal journey is actually a really universal journey. Everyone who sees it relates to the, the dimension or a, or a relative or a friend that is in a bad way that needs looking after or can understand that. Everyone can understand what we went through in the madness. Mm -hmm. Whatever you think, whatever side of whatever argument there is, we all experienced it. Yeah. And finally, the personal journey. There's loads of things that we all wished we'd done or wanted to do. And maybe in, in our dark moments think, will I ever do that, right? Mm. Well, maybe we won't. But Awake is me going, right, I'm going to knuckle down now and yeah. try and push all on my own. I'm going to try and yeah. push this thing up the hill. It's, it's, a, roller, Nathan it's, a, and I. it's a roller coaster of an album yes. and a show. And I must say, we've seen it at Camden Club yes. and Bedford and it's fantastic. But I don't we, think I'd ever twigged why it was called Awake. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Until I didn't. No, I know. Well, and, yeah, and yeah. basically the first song is called Awake because I only have a few lines in the song and it, and, and the lines really are, you know, if because uh, if, if, all, if it all seems fake, then we're awake. Yeah. I, I think all of us have an inner compass as to what's what's happening around us. Mm -hmm. And we can tell some bullshit when we... Can I say the bullshit? Yeah, of course yeah. you can. Too late yeah, it's now. On the you swear on it all the time. Um, <laughs> I think we all have an inner idea of when when something is is genuine or not really mm. and this seems to be a time that we need to be awake to who we are awake to love right i mean the real message of the, the whole thing and i talk about it in the show is that l love is the only tool in our toolbox that we can use to try and fix or heal anything in this world right you can't fix you know if, a, if something's burning you can't fix you can't put it out with more fire and you know if there's a flood you can't put it out by using a hose you there are only certain tools that will work right and in this situation this human situation love is the only thing that can have any impact at making a positive change because mm. if we are angry or if we're confrontational that eventually would just inflame more of what's going on and it, but it's hard right it's like the hardest thing 
how do you how do you impart uh, a sense to people that to be more loving is a more positive way when they're hurting and they're they're upset and angry. So my message is be awake to this at the very end of the show. You it flashes up. Be awake to love. Yeah, well said. Well said. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so, so what's next for? So now Steve Harris, <laughs> from go, Iron Maiden. go back to my, the beginning yeah. of my career, I was sending him tracks as I was writing them because although we'd lost contact for a long time, we'd got back in touch with each other before the lockdown and he wasn't, he, he doesn't live in the, he's not in the UK very much. So we were talking on the phone all the time. And when we first reconnected, it was like 1977 all over again. It was bizarre. That's fantastic. In the, because Steve is just, he's exactly the same. He, he, there's a few things that he really is passionate about. Music, obviously, football. West Ham. And those, those passions have never changed. And the reason that, you know, you can see him playing with British Lion in between Iron Maiden dates is because he just wants to play and he likes little clubs as well. I went and saw him in British Lion. Right. Um, you know, he, he's, still, he's still loving it, obviously. Absolutely. Very small venue to see somebody yeah, from Iron mega, Maiden. Mega and he doesn't, he's not really kind of caught up in the star thing, right? But he's very smart. He understands what Iron Maiden is and, and he's pushed and guided. And, and when we talk... Honestly, I just it feels like we've just gone down the pub and it's it's October 1977, <laughs> yeah, right? And we haven't seen great. each other for a couple of days. But because of that, when I started writing the album, I would send the tracks to him and he'd come back with um, comments, things like, he'd go, well, I think you can make the chorus a bit bigger in this one, you know, go go wilder with the orchestra, right? Just, he was loving everything. It wasn't like, nah, I don't like this one so much. And he's definitely the kind of person that would say that, right? He's very honest. He, he wouldn't bullshit me just to be nice, but he was enjoying the, uh, the, the, the music I was sending to him and being objective, right? Hearing it for the first time, I think you could double the length of that or I love the guitar solo in that. Maybe you could do more of it or whatever, right? That was the whole album. I kept sending him songs. He's been to see the show twice. He came once to the Camden Club and I did it once at the Cart and Horses and he came and, came and saw it there. He said, I love what you're doing. Do you want to open for British Lion? And I'd British, and I'd, he said, I should have asked you before. I said, I don't know why I didn't think of it, right? So I said, yes, of course. So supporting uh, Steve Harris yeah, after so all these years. We're going to be back on the stage, same stage for the first time since 1977. Fantastic. On the same night, right? Amazing. I have to rethink technically how I, I do it and also the length of the show I have to halve it really but I've done all of that I've worked out how to do all of that and so that means uh people who haven't yet seen Awake can yes. see it because it's going around the country where's yeah. it going to be we're starting at the and Carton you can Horses. see British Lion while you're at it absolutely They're, I've seen them quite a few times over the last couple of years and I I love the band and it, it's at Steve's energy is just like it's always <laughs> when we go to 11 it's always on 10 <laughs> it's always at max right great songs fantastic bands all great players and uh, so for me the, the, the challenge is just going to be physical as in depth of stage in order to get my screen yes. there and get the projector in place and it just tech, techy stuff but I am so thrilled and happy to say that they have a spare bunk on the bus so I'm travelling with the band oh it's rock and roll when yeah. does it kick off it kicks off on the 3rd of January at the Carton Horses all the Carton Horses show, we're doing three of them, two at the beginning and one at the end. They've all sold out. Quite a few of the dates have sold out now. But we're we're going to be going as far as Aberdeen, north, and as far south as the Isle of Wight. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you go to Wales as well, I believe. And we're doing Wales. We're going to Merthyr Tidville. There you oh, go. Oh, rough, wow. And, <laughs> and then when that tour finishes, the following week I start my own headline tour of the UK to really make the most of the uh, momentum and the profile yeah. of what I've just been doing. So I'm doing four shows in Wales, actually. I'm doing Punta Dawa. Yeah, Swansea. Yeah, by Swansea yeah. I'm doing Cardigan, a place called Muldan. Why side in Bilth? Bilth. Wells, yes, yeah. and also Noé Duifor 
in so um, I've got, I think um, four I think it's 14 dates of that as well Amazing. So, yeah, one of them is not too far from here with the Winners British Legion end of February yes is in, it? in Wokingham yeah same Stan Hetherington's book that one for Wokingham Music for that one. Oh, good yes it's down the road yeah. yes like 10 minutes away yeah uh, really yeah. yeah oh wow yeah, yeah. very go. cool yeah. Stan's great I, I reached out to him and he loved the show and well, what's really nice I found in, in putting this tour together for myself which has been really hard work is that there's a few pockets around the country where there are people who are just passionate about yeah. putting on music that they think other people will really like in little venues that are cool little venues right village halls um working men's social clubs, clubs social yeah. clubs yeah and and there's a there's a database of people that trust their judgment to some degree yeah. great stuff so when does the tour finish so the tour finishes on the 24th of Feb uh, in St Albans. And then there's an outside chance I might, none of this is confirmed, but I might be going, doing something at the beginning of March uh, out of Miami. But the plan is to take it to the States next. I've now got my American work visa for three years, starting at the beginning of next year. Oh, wow. And so my plan is to eventually take it to Vegas. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, show. wow. Yeah. yeah, why not? It seems like the kind of show that worked really well in Vegas, yeah. of course, as well. In the meantime, my next major project is the single I'm releasing in November. Um, so on November the 22nd, I've got a single coming out which will tie us back to Meatloaf. Right. So, yeah, I've heard this. Yes. It was a, it's a it's a really well I say topical, it's topical because of the anniversary. Yeah, so this is nothing to do with the wake specifically, although um, I will probably keep this in, in the kind of the encore moment of Wake to be able to play it. So in 2021, a friend of mine had been approached by Meatloaf to record, to produce his next album. And this friend had pitched one of my songs already, a song called We Are The Light. And Meatloaf apparently liked it. So he said, maybe that you should do a lyric rewrite. So I'm going to I'm look at the lyrics and I, and I just suddenly write another song for Meatloaf. I get inspired. And then I just had this brilliant idea that Meatloaf's had this incredible career. I'm going to write, I'm going to write an album for him. The, the arrogant Tony, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm going to write an album for him and I'm going to make it about his life. Because really, Meatloaf is a theatrical. His whole background was musical theatre, right? Yeah. And he's quite famously quoted as saying that he can't sing a song until he understands who the character is. And when he's got that, then he can sing the song and give it everything right so i started researching him reading all the articles i could find the books um films interviews and this guy's done some amazing things right he was in the original hair i get to this point and i suddenly realize he's telling this story about how uh, he grew up in dallas and one day when he was about 16 he and his two mates were in his car and they went down to this bowling alley called mickey mantles and as they arrived the receptionist was crying she said they said, what's the matter? She said, they, they just shot the president. JFK's wow. just wow. been assassinated, right? <laughs> so yeah. they go outside and say, hey, everybody, the president's been shot. Like and they go, does. oh, kids, yeah. get out of here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so they get in their car and they think they'll take him to Parkland Memorial Hospital because that's where they take the gunshot. Yeah, yeah. So they get in the car, they get up onto the freeway. And as they're getting onto the freeway, this guy steps out and holds his hand up with a badge. And he says, I'm Secret Service. The president's been shot. Get me to the hospital as fast as you can. <laughs> I thought for a minute you were going to say they were fingering them to, <laughs> no. for the actual shooting. No, no. <laughs> so, but they drive like crazy. <laughs> There's the kids and there's this secret service car and they get to the hospital, park the car and the guy gets out and runs in and they get out of the car and then they just see the limousine there. They go over to look at it oh, and wow. it's just got blood, blood. and roses in it. Yeah. Right, a chilling moment. Mm. 
And so the Secret Service guy comes back. He says, kids, here's a hundred bucks. Thanks for getting me here. And they were, oh, we can't take your money, sir. And he goes, well, you've got to take something. And they went, give us five bucks. So he gives them five dollars and they rip it into three bits so they can each keep a wow. memory of the day. When they go to school, no one believes them, no, obviously. No. When he goes home, he tells his mum what happened. She doesn't, she believe, doesn't believe anything. Yeah. And then the news comes on the TV and there's a news report from Parkland Memorial Hospital and there they are standing huh. right next to all the people being interviewed. Yeah, so I wrote this song called Blood and Roses from his perspective. It's like him telling the story, right? And then tragically in 2022, mm. he dies. Mm. I wrote seven songs for the album all about his life. So I kind of for forgot about it for a while. And then I realized that this year is the 60th anniversary marking the assassination of JFK on November the 22nd. So I thought, I'm going to put the single out because only two people can sing this, either Meatloaf because it's his story or me because it's kind of my story mm. of his story. And I got a, an amazing drummer called Tommy Harden in Nashville, who's a great friend of mine, who's played on most of the Awake album, actually. He, he played the drums, which got this amazing part he's played. Well, it's a great track Thank and you. you've got a great video for it as well. So here's the other thing. The times have changed technologically in the last two years, right? So AI is everywhere. Um, and and it, it, it splits people, doesn't it? We, yeah, you know, well, yeah, it split me sure at the beginning, right? I wasn't sure what to think about it. And then I'm trying to think, I have to make a video for this song. Meatloaf's no longer with us. And they, I can't use just general footage of him, so I, he can't mm. be in it. I can't, JFK's no longer with us. And also, all of the footage of that day is, is copyright, and mm. I can't use that. And I don't want to be in it, because it's not about me. It's a bit silly for me to do a performance video. I mean, I could, but... So I thought, how can I do this? And I thought, I'll try AI. My prompt was Sin City... 3D render, the style. And it gives me this thing back and I go, well, that's not quite what I wanted, but it's brilliant. But I created every single shot, including the very end where Meatloaf is shaking hands with JFK, where I created that image out of nothing. And it, it's almost, it's, I know it's a cartoon, but you know who it is, right? So I've sent it to a few people before the release, all of whom have gone, how, the, how did you do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's right? fantastically done. Because if you don't know how I do it, it looks like it's, yeah, it's like, it's like $60,000, yeah, yeah. $100,000 video, right? No, it's a, it's a fantastic track and, uh, and a great video to accompany it. And it's obviously, so it's out, it's going to be out for the, the anniversary of the, the yes, assassination. Yes, it comes out on November 22nd, which is a Wednesday. From Dallas, Texas, The Flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. November 22nd, 1963. Changed totally Jimmy, me and Billy In my Buick 58 Could never have guessed that Destiny's our date like crazy through the urban sprawl we knew that they'd take him to Parkland Memorial out on Stemmons freeway some guy flashed his star and shouted secret service stop I need your car we sped into the entrance the limousine was unattended It was a sight that I'll never forget There was blood and roses 
Mr. Secret Service Offered us all a tip We took five dollars And into three we ripped So each could keep a memory Of this day we shared Cause who would believe us That we were there So I think probably that concludes. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, that concludes the, uh, the Tony Moore special. And honestly, fascinating stories. Seriously, we, we really appreciate you sharing them. And it's what a well, journey. You're also going to play a couple of tracks. Yes, for yes, of absolutely. I've got, I've got a guitar and a keyboard. And what are you going to What are you going to go for? I think I'm not sure yet. I think maybe I play one of the tracks from Awake, a uh, song called "Love We Need You Here" on the acoustic, and then I might play you a brand new song. Oh. Okay. Um, yes, a brand new song called "Love Gives Me a Reason." Excellent, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, you. Uh, Tony, yeah. for coming in, uh, making this a really special episode of the podcast. Good luck with Awake. Not that you'll need it. <laughs> well, and I'm very, very lucky that that my uh, tour with Steve Harris and British Lion finishes the day. Well, the last night is the 24th of January, so I will be there on the stage for the Wigwam and Jammer Awards at the Bedford next yeah, year. Yeah, comparing yeah. again at the Bedford. It's because yeah. you, you guys did such a great job last year. And for the first year, the place was packed. The energy was amazing and it was a beautiful night. Oh, it's going to be another great night. And thank you for comparing as well, Tony. So, uh, Dino and uh, Nathan, big round of applause for uh, Tony. Thanks so much, Tony. Great. Thank you very much, guys. Hey there, it's been so long And I just heard your favourite song Come on the radio It made me miss you so I wonder where you are right now And if you think of me somehow And maybe miss me too I'd like to think you do
wish you understood I want you back for good And yes, I had to let you go But now you gotta know Love gives me a reason Gives me a purpose Keeps me alive And love gives me intention Creates a dimension Where I can survive Gives me a reason, gives me a purpose, keeps me alive. When love gives me intention, creates a dimension where I can survive. Hey there, it's been so long And I just heard your favorite song Come on the radio We're standing at the crossroads Of darkness and light And no one knows which way to go Is it left or right? And now we see we've been so blind cannot be heard You've gotta make a loud sound This may be our last chance So Love, we need you here We need your guiding hand To help us understand And Fear and bring us all 
You've been listening to the Wigwam Jam podcast. You can also watch the full podcast on the Radio Wigwam YouTube channel. If you are an independent artist and would like to appear on a future Wigwam Jam, please ensure you are registered as a premier artist at Radio Wigwam and also apply at jammermusic.com. The Wigwam Jam.